Welcome to Geek on Film with your host, Robbie Holmes. Hey there, folks. Welcome to episode 37 of Geek on Film. I'm Robbie Holmes, riding solo today. We're going to jump into some television I watched, a couple of films, uh, and then a main review of the Super Mario Brothers movie. So we'll start off on the television uh, tip, and uh, we'll start with Mandalorian Season 3, Episode 6. Uh, this is the episode that finds us uh, chasing down more Mandalorians. Uh, I think the, the end of the previous uh, episode, we saw that we've asked Bo-Katan to be the one that connects uh, the different tribes and factions of Mandalorians to one another. Um, and they head off into an adventure, her and Din and Grogu, to make that happen. They end up uh, heading towards a planet uh, that eventually locks them in because they find a tractor beam. But the episode opens with a group of Mandalorians um, fulfilling a bounty on it's a couple of kids uh, who are running away from their families and they're they can't live the life they want to live together. So the Mandalorians are basically uh, executing a bounty and bringing home the kid uh, to his family. Um, This episode finds us in a planet uh, that is called Plazir 15. Um, and we spend a lot of quality time with uh, Bo-Katan and Din Djarin uh, acting as sort of good cop, bad cop. It's a little like, uh, you know, you know, uh, Star Wars SVU is what it feels like, or it's pretty fun to see them like running around sort of noir style, trying to figure out a, a, what's going on on the ground. Yeah. We spend some time with, there's some stunt casting uh, where you get Jack Black and, uh, Lizzo as the king and queen elect of this planet. It's uh, it's fun. There's a lot of fun that happens on this. We have a really great cameo here with the head of security being uh, played by Christopher Lloyd. And that character, uh, it should have been a giant red flag when we saw him arrive, that we would get uh, him being a part of uh, sort of what's going on in this weird world at this point. Uh, It's really a blast Uh, in the end. It turns out he's a separatist. He believes in what Dooku is heading towards. Yeah. Well, we, we have the Mandalorians are outside of town. Um, Bo-Katan and Din go to confront them. We see uh, all the Mandalorians that we have seen previously, including Axe Woves and uh, Casca Reeves and a few others that we've seen in the past. And we get a fight between Axe and Bo-Katan for who should be leading the Mandalorians. Eventually, Bo-Katan wins the fight. Uh, Axe does not want to follow her because she has not taken the Darksaber from Din Djarin. And he basically hands it to her saying that she had won it uh, fair and square in a previous episode when he was captured and she killed the creature that took it from him. So sort of, um, I mean, Harry Potter Elder Wand style, it is hers through the principles of you know you you defeated the person who took it from me uh it seems like a cop-out especially considering the fact that the dark saber was such an important aspect of the story up to this point um to not have it be handed over in a battle or something that has a little more impact than din Djarin talking for 35 seconds to convince a group of mandalorians that are ultra skeptical of him felt weird so that's it for the Mandalorian. Uh, let's see. We'll jump over to Big Door Prize. I finally watched episodes one and two of that. Uh, this is a new show on uh, Apple TV Plus. Uh, it is full of an amazing cast. Chris O'Dowd plays Dusty. Gabriella Denise plays Cass, his wife. 
then you have Ali Mackie playing Hana and you've got who else do we encounter? Uh, there's a, a boy named Jacob played by Sammy Flores and uh, a few others that we spend a little quality time with uh, early on. The daughter of the two main characters is played by uh, Juliette uh, Amarai, uh, Trina. Um, really fun uh, premise for a show. There's a random machine that is called the Morpho machine that will tell you what your uh, potential is, not what you're supposed to be, not what you could be, what you are or where where you will go, just what your potential is. And that sort of rocks this small town. Everybody's getting the card, which comes out of this machine, and they're reevaluating their lives. This is a premise for this. Uh, Dusty, who we meet at the beginning, uh, who is the main character, Chris O'Dowd, is really anti this. He feels like people should uh, live in the life that they have. They, should, they shouldn't rely on a machine and a card to tell them what they could be. I really liked it. I, I'm, I'm two episodes in. Uh, I hear really good things about the show at large uh, from other critics. So it's been fun to dive into this with my wife. It's a show that I think that we can watch all the way through to the end. It's capturing both of our attentions. So really fun. The second episode dives deep into Cass, the mother of the family that we're spending time with and her getting her card and her potential card says that she's royalty is her potential. And that really throws her for a loop. So um, yeah, we're we're in this really interesting spot where people are getting these cards and they're starting to make decisions about their lives based on that. Um, and that's pretty cool. You know, the main character's parents come over for dinner, the mother of the of the woman and the parents, the mother and father of the main character. And they come to the dinner and discuss the fact that they're getting a divorce based on their cards. His said that he should be a male model and she should be. Uh, I forget what her card says, but uh, she takes it as an opportunity uh, healer, I think is what her card says, as an opportunity to heal herself. She's a, a person who works in the health industry and she's never gotten a chance to actually recover from something that happened in her past. Really, really fun. Really, like every scene here feels like dialed in. Everybody's um, moving the story forward. I think the scripts are really tight. The choice of actors, like the father of Chris O'Dowd's character is played by Jim uh, Mezkimen. And uh, he's fantastic as this sort of very uh, uh, secretly jacked uh, dad bod guy. Uh, he's really fun. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching more of these episodes. I, I really think it's going to be one of the shows that is a staple for the next couple of weeks for us. We'll jump over to uh, Yellow Jackets. Uh, this is a show that um, I will not spend enough time on because there's just too much going on in every episode. This episode's called Digestif. This is where the we're in the post episode where they have their first cannibalistic meal. So much goes on. We spend a lot of time um, in the cults with Lottie's group of people, and there's a lot of really you know conflicted Natalie time with Lottie. Yeah, there's this is a very long episode. I feel like just revisiting the plot for this makes me feel like there's a lot going on here. So one thing that I can talk about in this episode that seems really interesting is we're back in the teen era of the characters and Thaisa uh, wakes up in the morning and is trying to reckon with what is going on with the corpse of Jackie and, and what happened the night before. And she doesn't remember anything. At least that's what she says. And we have Van, who has been her like support, telling her very pointedly, like, you were right next to me. We talked. You ate her face. And then that just sends 
tie into this really like, you know, shame spiral, having to re-reckon with everything that happened the night before without any context for what was going on, if she doesn't remember. And uh, later in the episode, we see, you know, the nighttime tie get up and have a conversation with Van because she wants to go out into the woods and takes her. And there's a back and forth, even while they're walking, she's having a whole conversation with Van at this point. So, you know, nighttime Ty seems to be more communicative and acknowledges that there are two ties. There's her and then there's me. So yeah, I, again, this is moving forward in a really interesting way. We get a little bit more Elijah Wood uh, and Misty in the, the current day timeline, which is a real, real blast where they are interrogating somebody who was at the hotel, um, which is really ridiculous and silly. Yeah, it's uh, it's a fun episode. I, I look forward to more of this. I can't wait to to see the next episode. Again, it's getting a little long in the tooth. There's a lot of story going on here. So I hope they find a way to ground it a little bit more just to make it easier for people who aren't really watching and rewatching these episodes to get more out of it. Okay, so we're up to secession. Uh, this is one that people are going to be talking about for a very long time. It's Right now, it's a 10 out of 10 stars on IMDb. Uh, it seems like it was one of the most anticipated episodes, uh, especially because HBO did not give any screeners to critics. So the rollout of people reviewing this has been a little bit slower than previous episodes. So some critics had uh, assumed this might be a very important and, and monumental episode, probably with the death of uh, Logan. Yeah, it's it's pretty insane. We have Connor's wedding happening. They're all on a boat uh, Logan decides he's not going to go to the wedding. He sent some presents and he has Connors. Uh, he, he has Romulus is tasked with firing Jerry, uh, which really feels like a pointed evil thing for Logan to do to his son because they have a personal relationship above and beyond everything else crazy that's happened between him and, and her. It's, it's really mean. Yeah. So wedding, uh, start, everybody starts to get onto the boat and then, we see Shiv's phone. She gets three calls from Tom in a row and uh, she keeps hanging up on him. And eventually Roman answers his phone and it's Tom and Tom is explaining very sort of calmly that uh, things are bad. Uh, his, their, their father's uh, not breathing. He's getting chest compressions and uh, you might want to say something. So Frank and, and company, uh, tell Tom to call the kids so they can say goodbye, basically. So we're in a situation where it's Kendall and Roman are in the room together and they both get a chance to talk. And then eventually Kendall goes to find Shiv, who is off telling Connor that their father will not be coming to the wedding. And they peel her away and she comes and is sort of freaking out and losing it. And then eventually they go and find Connor and tell him it's important some of the most incisive writing I've seen on a show like this, each one of their reactions is very interesting. And it really tells you a lot about the character that the actors are portraying. You know, we get Roman barely able to hold, hold it together, constantly just cursing because he doesn't have any words to say. You have Kendall sort of trying to process in real time and, you know, both Kendall and Roman saying pointedly into the phone, like, I love you, but I can't forgive you. And then Shiv trying really hard to process and not really even coming uh, to the point where she can grok what's happening in that moment. And uh, and then Connor 
the first thing he says is uh, he never loved me when they tell him so many amazing little moments, but there's also amazing little like shorthand in the show. Kendall is really losing his mind and wants everything to be done perfectly. So he eventually gets Frank. Uh, he calls Frank on the phone and says he wants to talk to the pilot. And you get this one line where he's just like, son, he's flying the plane. And there's a, so much weight in that one sentence, right? Like, I think Frank is Kendall's godfather. So, you know, he's reckoning with the fact that, like, I know we've been on opposite sides. I know. But, you know, kid, you, you know, I was there for your dad. I was there for you. You know, we're doing everything we can. Uh, I'm sorry. All in like one se- sentence, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, I was really blown away. Uh, this episode, there's no surprises. Succession's good, but this is probably the best episode of Succession of all time. I think it's going to be very, very uncomfortable for people to revisit it. I think that it's not an sh- episode that people like. I, my comparison point was in the and found out through listening to some of the behind the scenes that there it, it felt a lot like the episode of The Bear, where everything is shot in one take. It turns out that they have. They shot like all the individual segments on the boat for for like five days, and then they did uh, multiple run throughs of it. It's like twenty seven minutes, and uh, so they shot it almost like an a, a one act play. Uh, they stashed camera uh, film all over the boat. Uh, they had three cameras running so that it could rotate in uh, and get not lose anything. Um, but it was all shot with like you know from their perspective and directly with coverage all. So, so much of what we see in the final episode is from that 27 minute take. Impressive, really, truly astounding. I think good luck Emmys and anybody else going against uh, Secession this year, because this episode was fantastic. Cool. So we're up to some films. I rewatched Training Day. So uh, hopefully I'll have a review of this up soon on geekonfilm.com. I bought the 4K Steelbook, uh, which is a new release of the 2001 uh, film Training Day. That was uh, written by David Ayer and directed by Antoine Fuca. Uh, Fuca. And uh, it's such an, a, fan, a fantastic movie. I think the thing I would say, uh, <laughs> I'm not really splitting the atom here. Uh, Denzel Washington is phenomenal. Ethan Hawke is unbelievable as this rookie. But um, the sense of like ominous dread and, you, you know, at any moment you you can't trust Denzel's character, Alonzo, you know, it's just this, it's like he's sitting in a car with like a, a, a lion. You never know when he's going to turn and you're going to be the prey. It's uh, it's powerful. There's so, so much like visceral uh, discomfort in this movie. I'm not going to break down the story here. I'm just going to say the transfer is fantastic. If you haven't seen it in a while, uh, it's really worth getting your hands on uh, the new release it looks great. It sounds great. It's it's got Adobe Atmos soundtrack, you know, you know audio track. Uh, it's it, there's not a ton in this movie that really plays off of that. It's a lot of like directional sound and not object based, but you know it sounds really good and it feels really lived in. This movie could have been shot yesterday. It was shot in 2000, probably 2000 to be honest. Boy, it's uh it's a disconcerting film. I watched it with my wife and my mother-in-law and uh, they, they were both just like, that movie was just mean. <laughs> and uh, it's true. It's a pretty mean movie. Um, really great cameos, lots and lots of people filling small roles in this movie. And I can't imagine anybody but Denzel playing Alonzo. So yeah, uh, go give it a shot. If you haven't seen it in a while, uh, my review will be up hopefully later this week. When everything everywhere all at once one uh, was, was, 
becoming sort of the juggernaut that eventually led to the Oscars. Uh, I had never really been exposed to the Daniels before and family members bought me a 4k version of everything everywhere all at once. And I already had it. So I decided to trade it in and got their first film or their previous film, Swiss army man, which is the absolutely absurd film where you have Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe, mostly in a two hander between them. Uh, where Paul Dano plays Hank and Daniel Radcliffe plays a dead body called Manny that slowly comes back to life to give Hank someone to be with. It's a really weird and fun movie uh, is the way I would put it. It's super weird. It's super surreal. You know, I I jokingly called it the farting corpse movie. You see so much on uh, so much potential in this film that eventually became everything everywhere all at once. The dynamic film, like the the framing of things, the use the use of really um, insane effects to really effective results. It's just such an insane movie. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Paul Dano is so broken and cold and emotionally unavailable and eventually like sad and emotionally vulnerable. And Daniel Radcliffe just so fun playing, you know, basically just a, a, a corpse at the beginning and slowly adding more uh, innocent questions and, and creating a character that constantly questions why Hank is embarrassed or doesn't like who he is. Boy, wow. Uh, really moving film. It's a hard sell, I think, for a lot of people. But if you liked everything everywhere all at once, I would say give Swiss Army Man a try. Just go in with a really open mind. It's, it's a weird premise and a weird movie. And I really enjoyed it. It was sweet and weird, which sounds like the Daniels MO at this point. All right, here we are. Main review, uh, Super Mario Brothers movie. So I went and saw this uh, at a Cinemark. So I saw it in XD. Uh, It's a pretty crowded theater. You know, the premise of this film is that well, let's see. It's written by Matthew Fogel. It is directed by Aaron Horgroth, Michael Jenilek, and uh, Pierre Leduc. We have Mario and Luigi, who are two plumbers from Brooklyn, New York. Uh, they are voiced by Chris Pratt and Charlie Day. And then we see Mario end up going down a pipe uh, after trying to save Brooklyn. That looks like a green pipe that we're all pretty familiar with. And he pops out in the Mushroom Kingdom and he meets Toad, uh, who is voiced by Keegan-Michael Key. The the premise of the movie is that Jack Black is playing Bowser and Bowser has collected a um, invincibility star and that he is in love with Princess Peach, who is voiced by Anya Taylor-Joy. And he has collected it so that way they can use it to remake the entire uh, galaxy in their image. Um, There's a lot of nostalgia berries throughout this movie is the way I would put it. It is kind of made in a lab for someone who's about my age, who grew up in Brooklyn and played a lot of video games. Um, That's the premise of the movie. We have a lot of other side tangents. Uh, Eventually, we have Princess Peach putting Mario 
through the ringer, which turns out to be like Mario Brothers, and he has to compete a course that looks a lot like many of the video games we've played. It's fun. It's it's charming. I, there was a lot of like worry and consternation about Chris Pratt being the voice of Mario. In the end, uh, it, it sort of all just falls off to the wayside. It doesn't really matter and that he's the voice. He does a fine job with it. The, he does not steal the movie in any way, shape, or form. We will leave that to our friend Jack Black. What a, a unique and uh, amazing voice actor he is. He feels like in every moment he is Bowser. He he brings something really uh, vibrant and and uh, powerful and vulnerable and funny to the character. Whereas like Chris Pratt is just kind of voicing Chris Pratt. Um, Anya Taylor Joy plays Princess Peach and she's fine. This is not like a great you know big role for her. I think Charlie Day as Luigi was actually really fun. Luigi is this sort of more concerning character he doesn't believe in himself as much he's not as optimistic as mario and i think we see a little bit of that there's a lot of uh voice actors in this movie that are doing uh, a lot of good work i I think the ones i would love to call out uh that are going to be pretty divisive for most people is we have fred armison doing cranky kong and i've heard a lot of people complain about his accent and what he's doing in this voice role it didn't take me out of it. It was a voice and a choice. I, I don't hate it. Seth Rogen as the voice of Donkey Kong, just doing Seth Rogen is surprisingly effective. Hearing Seth Rogen's like silly giggle come out of Donkey Kong's face uh, was pretty fun and they need to go. So uh, once Mario proves that he is a champion or worth being her champion, We go to Kong Country where we see Princess Peach negotiating with Cranky Kong and Mario is sort of blusterly saying he can do whatever needs to get done. And he eventually insinuates himself into a battle with Donkey Kong um, and they end up in a what looks a lot like a Super Smash Brothers battle. And uh, that leads to an area where they have a lot of power ups. So there's some some really fun little cameo uh, aspects and more nostalgia berries for characters that we, or versions of Mario that we like. Seth Rogen does a good job, in my opinion here, of uh, playing a sort of overly cocky Donkey Kong. This leads to Mario eventually winning this fight and them taking their carts. So apparently the Kongs are the ones that create all the carts in the Mario Brothers universe or the, or the Nintendo universe. So we ha- we see the beginning of what looks like Mario Kart um, coming together. You build your racer and then they get on on the road and it leads to the Rainbow Rainbow Bridge, uh, which is pretty amazing. It, it's very nostalgic, right? There's the Rainbow Road is is really beautifully rendered. Everything looks really great here. And it feels like, you know, every time we've ever played Mario Kart, some really great f- battles that happen here. And eventually it leads to uh, everybody getting separated and then, you know, making their way to back to the Mushroom Kingdom without the support and help that they needed. This eventually leads uh, Bowser to bring his island to the Mushroom Kingdom. Uh, and he eventually crashes through the Mushroom Kingdom goes in, and, and comes out through the pipe into Brooklyn. And the final battle takes place in Brooklyn 
where the Mario brothers, uh, where Luigi and Mario eventually both get their hands on the uh, invincibility star and they beat the crap out of Bowser. They eventually make him small using the blue mushroom. Yeah, it's 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 cute. There's no this is not the high point of cinema. This was a smile and a chuckle and 83 minutes. I got no complaints about this movie. I think they they were trying to establish a foothold in the Nintendo universe that would eventually lead to probably dozens of movies. And I think they did a good job. I think the script is like fun. It's nostalgic. It's uh, it hits a lot of needle drops that are based for the parents of the kids that are likely going to see this movie. There's a no sleep till Brooklyn needle drop. There's a whole bunch of needle drops in this movie. It's uh, it's fun. I wish uh, I had gotten to see it. I, I wish I had gotten a chance to talk about it with John. I feel like this is way up his alley and we would have definitely been a little little more like uh, excited if we were, you know, basically pumping one another up to talk about all the amazing things that happened in this movie. There are two post credit scenes. Uh, one is mid credit. One is end credit. If you don't want to know about them, now is a good time to say goodbye. But there's no real big surprise here. The, the post credit scene, three, two. One, you just see Yoshi's egg. And uh, what's really cute is I was in the theater. I'm standing at the end. I'm ready to head out. And uh, I'm waiting for the final uh, post-credit to arrive. And there's a set of parents and they're they're two boys. And as soon as Yoshi's egg came up, one of the boys went, yes! And like jumped in the air like Mario. And uh, it was so cute. And then I saw them outside after I went to the bathroom. And I was like, was that you guys in the back? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, God, your son's reaction was perfect. That's kind of like what I was hoping for. And she was like, yeah, it was so fun. I was like, yeah, he, he seems like he really enjoyed it. You know, it's perfect for that, right? Like this is, you got to remember what this movie is made for. You got to remember who the audience is. This is not going to be Killers of the Flower Moon, or this is not going to be a Fincher film. This is a Super Mario Brothers movie. Um, and it did its job and it understood the assignment, as I've often said. Yeah, that's it for me. I think next week we're going to, Hopefully jump over to Renfield as the main review uh, and more and more television, of course. Uh, we're heading towards the Emmys, so the, the show feels even more TV-focused than movie-focused at the moment. There's so much uh, prestige TV on on television right now that is trying desperately for your, your eyeballs and for your mind share as they head towards the Emmys. Uh, no complaints, though. Really good, really amazing television happening right now. Uh, that's it for me, folks. Uh, this is Robbie. Uh, I'm Robbie the Geek everywhere online. Uh, feel free to track us down at geekonfilm.com, geekonfilm.com on Instagram and Twitter. We would really love uh, ratings and reviews. That helps us out a lot. Uh, so please share share the podcast with people you, you think might like it. And uh, yeah, five stars. It's our favorite. Thanks so much. Have a great week. This has been a Geek on Film podcast. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.